0: let's begin this evening's session. Let's begin by praying. Father, as your word is declared, we ask that you'll speak forth, Lord, clearly into our hearts. We ask that the word will go forth to accomplish what you want it to do, Lord, in each and every one of us. We pray for hearts that will be good ground. Holy Spirit, just empower me and enable me so that all that is prepared um, will come alive for all of us this evening. We bless you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Tonight's message is entitled, Twister Alert. And I'll tell you that the very first picture I had when I came up with this title was one of a hurricane or a tornado. Actually, a tornado would be a a better picture, yeah? And I found a really good one, you know. It's dark, it's ominous, and uh, the tornado was spinning and Uh, right there, there was one house that was being splintered. And I said, wow, that's what I want to get across. A twister alert. In other words, you know, when a tornado comes into your path, I mean, we don't get it in Singapore, but we know in the States, in certain places, they really have to be warned when tornadoes are coming, you know. Uh, It destroys everything in its path. There's destruction. You can just expect that. And I think that's, that's a sense I want us to have. Except that this twister I'm talking about is not really a tornado. It's really this picture you see, one of a snake, where he's twisted and he's twisty. And he's always twisting and he's always turning. And it's not quite as obvious as a tornado, right? You can see a tornado coming, but well, for a snake, this guy is sneaky. But the same thing we must be warned about danger and destruction. You see, and that's why I later on I took away that picture of a tornado and I thought I would just explain to you my intent so that you will understand why I call this a twister alert. Because once the enemy comes, we better be careful. We want to be aware and we want to be alert. So this evening when we study the second temptation of Jesus, We want to know what the ploys are of the enemy, the strategies of the devil. And these are not often noticeable to us. They're very subtle. We want to explore first the details and the context of this passage in the second temptation, just three verses. And from there, I want to proceed to four points that we must be on guard about. So let's read Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 to 7. When we come into this second temptation, the first thing we notice is a change of a scene and a change of setting. When we met John the Baptist who was in the wilderness, Jesus, after he was baptized, he was led by the Spirit also into the wilderness, and that's where we left him the last time. But this second temptation, the devil changes the scene and the setting is very, very different. We now move from the wilderness To the temple. If you look at the wilderness, it's a barren piece of land, right? It's empty, it's dry. But from that barrenness, we move to the holy city. From barrenness, we move to a place that is considered beautiful, it's inhabited, populated, and it's called the holy city. The wilderness is a place of aloneness. And now when we come into the temple, into the Jerusalem, the place where God dwells, it is contrasted with the presence of God. In other words, if you are in the wilderness and you feel alone and devoid of the presence of God, then in the temple is the best place to find the presence of God because He says, that is where I will be. The wilderness is a place of weakness. Jesus was hungry, but the temple was really a place of strength because that's where God would be, and Jesus is the Son of God. I think He would have been very happy to be at the temple. The wilderness moves from a low point, and the devil brings Him into a high point. And this is literal. I mean, you know, in the wilderness there, He was out there in the land, on the land, on the ground. But here, and in the temple, He was raised up to the pinnacle of the temple. Now, there's a lot of debate and a lot of speculation how the devil took Jesus to this location. Some say, well, it's figurative, you know. Or maybe it's just hallucination. It's just somewhere in the spirit where Jesus, you know, maybe He was too hungry. You know, He he felt that He was being lifted up to the temple. But whatever it is, I, I personally think it is real. I believe it's real. Otherwise, the temptation then would not be real. Right? It has to be real. That means physically, by some way, spiritually obviously, you know, the, the, the devil brought Jesus to this new location. So here you have a picture of the temple, but I want to show you the, a schematic of the temple. On the top right, you see a schematic of Herod's temple in Jesus' time. On the left, you see a layout of how this temple would be. And the Bible says that the devil took Jesus up to the pinnacle of the temple. Now in English, when we read pinnacle, we tend to think that it's like a tower or something sharp, like a steeple like that. But it does not mean that. Literally, just means a wing of the temple and pinnacle being the highest point. So Jesus was brought to a certain location in the temple or at the temple. It was the highest point. And from that point, the enemy then tells Jesus, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. So this pinnacle, where is it? What is this highest point? What is the significance of this highest point? There are two possibilities. So let me share this with you. The very first possibility is that it could be on the outer edge of what we call Solomon's portico on the eastern and southern, the southeastern. This is the south and this is the east. So right at this edge. And this edge actually overlooks the Kidron Valley. So imagine if you are standing here and you look down, that would be the valley. It's a 450 feet drop, 137 meters all the way down. Josephus, in recording this point, actually says that it is a dizzying height. That means if you stand there, wow, you you start to spin. So that could have been that place that Satan was with Jesus up there and says, yo, Jesus, if you, the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now what was his intention? Maybe, perhaps, Jesus was being tempted by the enemy and the enemy is saying, I want you to jump down And if you jump down, the angels will come catch you. So everything's going to be cool, right? But maybe the devil just wanted Jesus to jump and for him to really just fall flat on his face and it would have been fatal. And if Jesus would have died there and then, that would be the end of his messianic mission. Right? And remember, before that, he tempted Jesus not to starve in the wilderness to death. Say, ah, you better turn these stones into bread. Don't die. You have an important thing to do. Now he does a reverse psychology. You go jump and go and die. So that's a possibility. The second observation or the second consideration is it could have been the inner edge of Solomon's portico. In other words, it no longer overlooks the valley. It looks into the temple grounds. And as it looks at the courtyard, presumably it would have been filled with many, many people. And the devil is saying, Jesus, jump off in front of these crowds. And then the angels will just swoop in and save you and ta-da! Suddenly, you know, you, you land in the midst of all these people and they will look at you and it's like, whoa! And this is actually a possible fulfillment of this verse, Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. You see that? So suddenly, he's standing up there. You know, the the people are down there. And he just jumps, bungees with no bungee rope. And the angel catches him. Wow, what a magnificent messianic manifestation. Clap, 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 clap. Well, you remember later on, uh, Jesus would really show and reveal many messianic signs. And the people still didn't believe. What do we see about this enemy of ours? You see, the twister loves to twist the word. So he says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. The enemy knows the Bible. He knows Scripture. In the very first temptation, Jesus used the word against him. And Jesus says, look, you will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. I'm standing firm on the Word of God. So the enemy uses this now against him. Okay, Jesus, since you're going to live by the Word of God, let me tell you what the Word of God says. For it is written. You see, this is the Word of God. So you said you trust the Word of God, right? So since you trust the Word of God, why don't you act on the Word of God. So let's look at what Satan was quoting from. He quotes from Psalm 91, and I know it's a favorite of many people. It's a beautiful psalm. We won't read the whole psalm, but we know it's talking about abiding in the shadow of, his, of the Almighty, in the wings, and there there will be protection. So he quotes, For he shall give his angels charge over you, in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. But you notice that actually he leaves out one line. He leaves out this phrase, to keep you in all your ways. And some commentators have said, look, you see, if he left that out. And that's why he was inaccurate. He misquoted the scripture. And you can make a case for that. But you know that in rabbinic quotation, and Jesus does it, and the other rabbis do it, they would quote just a section, and they don't have to mention the entire thing. You would know what you're talking about. So this is not entirely unacceptable. It is not entirely inaccurate, because it's a practice of the rabbis. And if the enemy knows the word, he would know also how to use it in his twisted and sneaky way. So what we see here is not so much a misquotation. The problem is a misapplication. It's not that he misquoted the word. It is that he deliberately misapplies it. See, Psalm 91 is about divine protection, and we can say amen to that. But if you go deep into this Psalm, it talks about divine protection for one, those who love God, those who dwell in His presence, and we say, well we, well, we all do that. Well, I'm sure Jesus does that too. But it presupposes also this person's obedience and faithfulness to God and His purposes also. Psalm 91 is not about divine protection in all situations including, number one, presumption, number two, irresponsible decisions, number three, stupid acts. Can you see the enemy is misapplying this passage and telling Jesus just go man go jump I mean it's like us now telling you you know why don't you just go there go down to the road right now and just walk in front of a bus and while you do it pray Psalm 91 maybe the guy who ran onto the F1 track was praying Psalm 91 See, the Word of God is not to be twisted to our own liking and application. (laughs) But the twister twists the Word. Now, I want to assure you that divine protection is all through the Bible. Let me give you some examples. Israel was protected, right, in Goshen when the plagues came upon Egypt. Divine protection. Daniel was thrown into the lion's den. You know the story. Divine protection. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, cast into a fiery furnace. Divine protection. Jesus promises believers, you will take up serpents and if you drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Mark 16 verse 18. And we believe there is divine protection for those obviously who believe and those who act in accordance to God's will. This verse is particularly apparent in the life of Apostle Paul. He tells young Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 17, I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. In Lystra, Paul was stoned by Jews from Antioch and Iconium and after that, this is really cool, you know. They stone him. You read the Bible. And after that, they carry him out, think that he was dead already. After that, he gets up. And then the next day, he goes on to preach. I mean, this is cool, right? Divine protection. He was shipwrecked on this island called Malta. And as he put his hand out, this snake, the viper, jumps out and bites. And everyone thinks, man, this guy's going to be gone. He shook off the creature into the fire, and he suffered no harm. See, there is divine protection for the people of God. And yet, when you read the Bible, you also see that at times, divine protection doesn't seem to be there. Doesn't seem. You see, I don't want you to say that there's no divine protection for us, because there is. The book of Hebrews, and I love this second part of Hebrews 11, and I remind myself always, many times. From 11, 32 to 35, we see there are great testimonies of breakthroughs and victories because of faith. By faith, people you know, are raised from the dead. By faith, they receive their breakthrough. They, they quench fires and so on. But the second part of verse 35 onwards, it goes on and it says, Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Verse 36 Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. Yes, and of chains and imprisonment. You want to go on? Verse 37. They were stoned. As if that's not bad enough. They were sawn in two. They were tempted with, and were slain with the sword. Anyone want to talk about divine protection? Psalm 91. Tell them they had no faith. And here was a chapter about faith. Can you understand the the teaching I'm trying to share here with you? The enemy twists the Word. And if he cannot cause you to doubt God's Word, he will cause you to misapply it. He's that sneaky. I want you to see the next verse. I I found it really interesting. If you read, he quotes after verse 12 and he stops, right? Because verse 13 is about him, you see. You shall tread upon the lion and the cobra. The young lion and the serpent, you shall trample underfoot. How come he didn't read that part? And I find it really interesting and ironic. The enemy would use a psalm that promises protection from the lion and the serpent to get Jesus to be defeated by himself, who is the lion and the serpent. Jesus is the lion of Judah. But the enemy is called a roaring lion who prowls. Seeking whom? he might devour. And we know he's a sneaky snake. That old serpent, mentioned in Revelation, first mentioned and the first appearing in Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. See, if you misapply the Word of God, you can also play into the enemy's courts. I'm not saying you want to do that. But if you're not aware of it, then you serve his purposes without even realizing it. So be careful. I know Psalm 91 is a beautiful hymn, a beautiful song, a beautiful psalm. And many people quote this, especially they say, I pray this, I never get sick. Or I pray this, I don't have to go see any doctor. Because my faith is that strong in this. Now, I'm not saying that God didn't tell you, but you have to be very careful about that, okay? And so, as you go on, the twister twists the word. So now the living word Jesus quotes the word back in return. And so, Jesus says to Satan, It is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So, what does he do? Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy. You'll notice that all three times in the temptation, he will quote from Deuteronomy, which is a reputation of the law. Deuteronomy chapter 6:16 6, actually says, "You shall not tempt the Lord your God, as you tempted him in Massah." So if you want to know the context, you have to go back into the Old Testament to find out what Masah is all about and what happened at Massah." Now you'll find the account in Exodus chapter 17 verses 1 to 7. And this is the story of Israel as they come to a point that they were thirsty. They had no water to drink. They get upset. They complain. They, they fight with one another. They are contending with uh, Moses. And finally, Moses goes to God and says, what have you done to me? Why do you ask me to bring this kind of people out? And God says, this is what you need to do. Take your rod. Just go strike this rock and water will come out. And it did. And then the people had water. And so Moses called the name of the place Massah and Meribah because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now look at this one verse. This tells you the significance and the, the, the reason the whole meaning of this temptation of Jesus Christ. The people complained. They tested God. They tempted God. Is He there with us or not? Are you here with us or not? You took us out from Egypt. Do you care about us even at all? That's called massa, tempted. Mariba is to contend, to quarrel and to fight. And so we see from this point, and from this one line, is the Lord among us or not? The significance of this temptation is a doubting and a questioning of God. Go test God. Go tempt, go, go and check. Is He really with you or not? Go and try it out. And especially when there are times where we are stretched We are prone to testing God's faithfulness and the reliability of His Word. Have we demanded that of God sometimes? Right? We we want real, we want solid proof that He's with us. And I want to say this, you know, I believe by the Lord's grace, He does reveal Himself to us. And there are times He does pender even to our craziest demands. But if you are growing in the Lord and you desire to grow into maturity, do you know that all the time you're asking for this, it actually reveals a lack of maturity and a lack of faith? Did you hear that? See, I've always seen young Christians, they don't have to ask. God reveals Himself to them. As they start to move, oh God, can you show this? Yes, God shows it to them. And God reveals His nature and His character. But I've also seen that as these people start to grow and they come to a certain point, suddenly God appears very silent. They hit a patch. It's like, hey, what happened? I keep hearing God all this time and suddenly He's gone. And they start to test God again. Will you show this to me? Will you give this to me? How come you're not here with me anymore? See, if we have to keep asking that of God, then our faith and our maturity is really not there. What's the test? Only you know. When you reach a difficult point, when you reach a time of trial, when you feel a sense of weakness and aloneness, what's the first thing you do? What's the first thing you do? Question God. Fight with God. Argue with God. You know? And it's all in the position of a heart. God will see the attitude that is within there. Let me ask you, do you think this is applicable, this Significance of this temptation is applicable to New Testament Christians. Obviously it is. Otherwise, we'll be wasting time learning this. Do you know that this incident was quoted once more by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 where he says in verse 4, talking about Israel, all drank the same spiritual drink and they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. What rock was he talking about? He says, that rock, was Christ then he goes on a couple of verses down in verse 9 he says therefore let us not tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents now again if you go back into Old Testament accounts you'll begin to see how did they tempt they were saying God Why do you bring us into the wilderness? Why do you bring me into a difficult problem? You know, how come this? How come that? Are you with me or not? Are you for me or not? They never seem to learn. They never seem to grow. And in that, we tempt God. Remember I gave you a teaching that the word tempt comes from this Greek word called perazo. And perazo is looking at how we can test something to show up the negative. And so we are tempted to tempt God. We perazzle God also by looking at the negatives. We say, Lord, why you let me down? You should be blessing me. God, how come you didn't give me enough? How come they have more? So we're always looking at what God didn't do for us, what God didn't give to us, how God didn't come through for us. And we tempt Him in that way. You understand? So when you read the scripture, tempting God is not, oh yeah God, i got chocolate, would you like? That's not called tempting God, right? But there's a testing of God in a way that we reveal the negative aspects as if there was any in God. But what's our problem? We tend to look at the negatives of God. How come you didn't heal me? How come you healed them? How come you, you know? And we're always looking at that. Versus Lord, okay, I don't understand this situation. The psalmist cry, How long, God? Because your word says you will deliver me. How do I keep trusting you? I will still praise you. I'm still content. I will rejoice even if I go through this trial. You understand that that very subtle difference? And the enemy who is the twister will twist it. And he is really good at it. And we allow ourselves to be twisted. And that's why I want to bring a twister alert. I want you to be careful because the twister can twist things and try to get us to do things we may not want to do or may not understand. So firstly, he misapplies Scripture. Next, he gets us to question and to doubt God. As I was preparing this, I said, Lord, man, I I fail, man, this. I've also tempted you. And I never realized it. And it's scary because when it when the Lord just brings to mind the way that I am, it's scary. And that's why after that I'm just so thankful that I am hidden in Christ. If not for Jesus, where would I be? Amen. If Jesus had not passed this test and and gone through with his messianic mission, died on the cross. Wash me clean. Present me righteous. Where would I be? But that does not mean that we can just any old how apply scripture, right? We still have to learn. And that's what this lesson is all about. I bring you a twister alert. Let's go now through the next four points and see what we have to be careful about. Let's look at this first point called the ministry of angels. You realize this whole episode in the second temptation was all about angels. Satan himself is a fallen angel. And he's telling Jesus, you jump, your angels will come save you. So I want to talk about the ministry of angels a little bit. I'm no expert in this one, but I thought it's still good to just mention a few points for us to consider. Let's ask ourselves, do we believe in angels? Yes, we do. Definitely so. They are all around us. I may not see them nor feel them. Some of you could have that perception much stronger than I, and that's fine. But by faith, I want to declare they're all around us. Amen? So we believe in angels. They're all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. That's us. And that's quoted from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Yes, I believe in angels. But my question is this, are we supposed to always look for angelic manifestations? And that somehow, along the way, we could end up worshipping those angels. Now that is scarier. Now we will say no. But could we be twisted to a point, ever so subtly, that we start to move towards that? I know you will agree with me, definitely not the worship of angels. We have the right Christian answer. We only worship Jesus. But how about manifestations and visitations? Because really, what I see now, I hear a lot of these stories. And whilst I believe in angels, I myself would like to be careful. And I say, Lord, please help me in this one. I believe that angels and the ministry of angels would happen... When the Lord allows that and moves that and can save someone, it can come through in some ways, you know, and all that. But that we don't look for these things, because when we start to look for these things, my concern is that we start to put it as a more superior spiritual experience. And when we begin to do that, that's dangerous, because if I have seen angels and you have not, then I'm more spiritual than you. It Doesn't say that. I've got Jesus and you've got Jesus. We're okay. You understand? Second thing about angels is this, and I was in my study, I was reading this from a commentator. It was interesting. That's why I'm not teaching it as a point. But he, he threw this point and said, Would you just consider this? That Satan, as a fallen angel, has with him at his disposal his demons, his fallen angels. And you remember in the time of Daniel, where Daniel prayed and angelic opposition took place the prince of Persia opposed and delayed God's messengers. 21 days. Okay, That's in Daniel chapter 10. You can go read. And so the fallen angels were opposing God's angels and they were successful for 21 days. So this commentator said, could it be that the enemy knew this? So he says, go Jesus, you jump. The angels will swoop down to catch you. Now how long does it take for Jesus to move from the Peak all the way down to the to, to hit poof, the valley. Three seconds. And when Jesus jumps, could he then summon his demonic angels to delay oppose God's real angels? Interesting thought. I'm just, you know, want you just the concept. Is it possible? Yes. There's a demonic, angelic battle going on that we are not aware of. I want to cover this point about Satan. He himself, as an angel, he can transform himself into an angel of light. This should make you really careful, right? Twister alert. What does it mean that he will be an angel of light? Will he look ghastly and ugly? No, he will look bright and attractive and beautiful, Right? And I told you that you must know your enemy. He doesn't come with two horns. Because you would spot him a mile away. And you say, get thee behind me, Satan. But if he comes in something that's attractive to you and appealing to you, almost like someone from God, would that be dangerous? Yeah. And Paul actually writes about this, referring also to false apostles. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 13. For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Now guess what this means in plain English. There are preachers that are preaching nice-sounding messages that may not be from Christ. Verse 14. And no wonder, Paul's saying, no wonder, don't get so surprised. Because Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light, therefore it is no great thing if his ministers, his servants, also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness. They will keep preaching righteousness to you. Does it sound like the church? Yes. And that's why it's so difficult to discern whose end will be according to their works. They will be judged for it. These are the people who are ministers of Satan and they preach another Jesus. They preach another spirit. They bring another gospel. Twister alert, guys. You better check every word that I'm saying. Make sure that I'm not twisting things and twisting you either. Amen? And for every message that you love to hear, Check it out. Let's beware the sensational and the spectacular. Satan told Jesus, do a swan dive. Leap off this building. It's going to be spectacular. It's going to be sensational. I'm going to make sure that the follow spot is on you. The drum is going to roll. There will be a chorus of dancers that will come out after that. Smoke machine even if you like some effects. Beware the sensational and the spectacular. You know, today we live in a world where 3D is not even enough. I know the technology just came out not too long ago. So every movie now, you have three-dimensional. Pay more. Now we have 4D if you go to Resorts World or any of the theme parks, right? Right? Where when the donkey sneezes, you actually have his <laughs> this wet feel on you. Or, yeah, things that will tickle you. Yeah, you, you know what I mean. Yeah? You, you've been there. Do we need 5D? When will we stop? If you look around the world, everyone is now getting into this thing called extreme sports and thrills. Why? They, they, they want adrenaline to pump. They are just so bored. It just shows you how bored they are with life. You just have to push the limit, push the limit, keep pushing the limit. You notice people don't want to read anymore. They want to watch. They want to feel. They want to experience. And so you tell people, read the Bible. They say, cannot, I fall asleep. You preach better. I listen. Soon, pastors will have to act out the whole Bible. Yeah, we, have to, we must have skits, must have plays. I mean, these are nice things in church, but you realize there's a lot of these things nowadays. and We spend so much effort putting all these things on. And whilst it does touch hearts, I wonder if it's only entertaining them for that moment. So I'm asking about extreme experientialism. Be careful, because if you want to keep experiencing things, The world is happy to give that to you. And there's a lot of focus today about the paranormal, about the supernatural, and about New Age spirituality. That's why many young people are caught into this. Ouija boards and stuff like that. They want to touch base with the supernatural. And if the church is not giving it to them, they'll find it somewhere else. But then again, the church must be careful because if we swing towards that extreme, we could be... Led down the wrong path. Are we worshiping God or is it called worshiptainment? Where we need the ambience. We, we, we need the lights down. The room has to be dark, otherwise God won't come. We need to have that tingling oh, I felt God today. And if you don't, how? Huh? You complain and end up tempting God. Crazy, right? Have we been trained? to depend on these accessories and props to help us to worship. Now, do we believe in miracle signs and wonders? Yes, we do. And these are in themselves unusual. They are sensational. They are spectacular. Praise the Lord. But you see, whatever God wants for us, where there's a truth, there will be a counterfeit. And Paul warns in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, talking about the Antichrist, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. You want a nice show? The enemy will know how to give you a nice show. Look at Hollywood. They know how to put on a good show. As the church, we have to ask ourselves, in trying to redeem what has been lost, are we swinging to another extreme? The stage and the lights and the props and so on. Very nice. What is it all about? What holds us steady, my friends? See, we have to ask ourselves, do we understand the difference between the word that is objective and experiences that are subjective. You see, in this room, all of us, we are of different makeup, different personalities. And our experiences will be different. And sometimes I think we try to force everyone to do a same experience. That's a problem. You can experience it one way, and I can experience it another way, and, and they will be subjective one to the other. I don't want to judge your experience. But what is the common ground for us? The Word of God. That's objective. But it's scary that even today, the objective Word is being touted as subjective because it's being twisted. Twister alert. Let's ask this question. Who serves who? Who is serving who? I made this statement, humanism and hedonism puts us at the center. What's humanism? Humans are important. Humans have intellect. We are smart. We are capable. We are generally good. That's humanism. You understand? God doesn't even feature. All this rights issue, that's humanism. What's hedonism? Pleasure. You're seeking after pleasure. Now if I'm important, then all I want is pleasure. Anything that is not pleasurable doesn't fall into my purview. I don't want to know it. So I'm the most important. And have you heard this? God wants me to be happy and comfortable. Have you heard this preached before? God wants you to be happy. And that's why when we counsel Couples who are going through divorce or going through a real challenge. I hear this all the time. But I'm not happy in this relationship anymore. So because I'm not happy, I can get out. That's good reason. Doesn't make sense. But they think it makes a lot of sense. Paul warns of this in the last days. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1-5. to There will be perilous times And the times are perilous because men will be. You see the reason here? The perilous times are caused by what or whom? Men and women. Because they will be lovers of. What are they lovers of? There's a whole list, but I just bring out the lovers of. Verse 2, they'll be lovers of themselves. They'll be lovers of money. Go all the way down to verse 4. They'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, you've got to figure this out again, yeah? every time. Because there are church people who will say, but I love God. But actually, if you look at their lifestyle, look at their speech, they love themselves, they love money, and they love pleasure. So who's right? See how scary this is? Who is serving who? What's the good news? Is today's good news... When you believe in Jesus, everything will be fine. Everything will be dandy. Come to Jesus, all will be good. It sounds right. But do you know that behind that statement is a very materialistic motivation? And we only want God for the good things? God is good because He gives me good things? No, God is good because He's God. That's it. So, if Jesus wanted just to serve himself that day, he might have just been tempted to do what he was asked to do. But he knows that he serves his Father who is God. But today, Jesus has been made out to be our servant when we were saved to serve him as the King and his purposes. Think about this, isn't it not true? Jesus is always there to either to heal or to counsel or to guide or to fight spiritual battles for us. People bully us. We send Jesus there. He's there to soothe us, pat us on our, on, our, on our shoulder, to provide for us, to bless us, multiply our bank accounts. Hey, just look at Facebook. You look at the kind of posts out there. It's all that kind, that type. That's who Jesus is to many people. How about King? Why don't we start with King first? Because that's what it is. He saved us into his kingdom. He's the king. That's the good news of the kingdom. That when you align with this king, yes, things will move according to his plan. Sometimes may not be very nice for us. Finally, as we talk about Twister Alert, I think we have to be careful. It is written. What is written, friends? Do you know what is written? I love to do this exercise with different congregations and especially when I teach about the Word of God. What is the biblical literacy of the church? How well does the church know the Word of God, understand it and live it? That's what I mean by biblical literacy. On a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being the best and 1 being the worst, where would you uh, uh, put this marker? Silently now in your hearts, what number would that be? And after you think of this number, ask yourself, what is your biblical literacy? Are you above or below that number? So I did a little exercise and it's quite consistent. The number comes up to be about three and a half. Three and a half, biblical literacy. Think about this. huh? Singapore, highly educated, academic, can read so many things, can understand so many things, can argue so well. Christians, biblical literacy. Let's be kind, five, okay? So we say, it is written. What is written? How do we interpret the Word of God? First, you've got to read the Word of God. And why is interpretation important today? Because we live in a post-modern culture of relativism. So have you been into a cell group where you sit down, you talk, and you open the Bible and you discuss? Okay, sometimes we don't even open the Bible, we just discuss. And then you argue, 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 fight, 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 and then you realize it's 10 o'clock, everybody wants to go home. And then we, how do we conclude? Oh, it's okay lah, that's your opinion, this is mine. God loves us, so it's alright. That's not Bible study or interpretation, right? That's dangerous. Because if we misinterpret the Bible, it leads to a misapplication, which I call misobedience. Which means to say, you think you're obeying the Bible, but you're misobeying it. Remember, the issue just now with Satan was not the misquoting of the Bible. It was a misapplication. He was twisting the application. Do we understand context? I hope you realize that in our study of Matthew, every time I go through the Bible, I will talk to you about the context. Let's look at the context. What does it really mean? How about the verse before? How about the verse that's after? I say if you don't consider context, you might just be conned by the text. And many people will take one verse and they'll pull it out of perspective. Let me give you a quick example. Have you heard of this before? That if you put your hand... On the plow, you cannot take it off. No man putting his hand on the plow should take it off, otherwise he's not worthy of me. Have you heard this verse before? It's in Luke, right? But does the verse actually say that? The verse doesn't say that. The verse actually says, No one having put his hand on the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now this talks about discipleship, meaning if you're going to follow Jesus, you follow all the way. You don't turn back, you don't look back. But you know, I've heard that some people have used this against people who serve. So if, for example, you come and tell me today and you say, you know, Pastor, I think uh, I, I, I feel that I would like to stop serving in this ministry, yeah? cell group or worship team or something like that. This minister could well look at you and quote this verse and say, you know, brother, if you put your hand on a plow, you cannot take it off, you know. Otherwise, you're not fit for the kingdom. You see how dangerous that is? Now if this guy doesn't know the Bible, he'll say, oh no, no, I better stay on. Because I want to be fit for the kingdom, right? So there you have. Continue, cell leader. How about the other one? Where we talk about persistent prayer. Luke chapter 18, verse 6 to 8, where there's a parable that Jesus talks about, that there's this woman who persistently badges this judge. And right before that is one verse that says, when you pray, do not lose heart. So we've taken that one verse and we say, look, when you pray and you're waiting for your, for your, for your car and your deliverance and your breakthrough, don't give up. You keep praying and that car will come. You keep praying, you know, and the money is going to come. Because the Bible says, pray and do not lose hope. Sounds correct, right? But if you look at the context, what is it really saying? Jesus is saying, hear what the unjust judge said. Shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. It's not about your house. It's not about your car. It's not about your bank account. It's about justice for the people of God. See the big problem here? And we're bought into this twisted teaching. You know why we like it? Because we want our house, our car, and our money. Let's be honest with each other. So I ask you, please pray for teachers of the Word. Please pray for me. James chapter 3, verse 1 says that, Let not many of us become teachers, for they will receive a stricter judgment. Please pray for me. And pray for every teacher of the Word. Amen. That we will not compromise. That we will spend time in the word and not shirk our responsibility. Because the day is coming where it's going to be difficult to preach the word. And even if you want to preach it accurately, people may not want to hear it. So I ask you is the word a plumb line to you or is it a pendulum? Because if it's a plumb line, then you measure everything by this word. But if it's a pendulum, then you would be like a child blown about by every wind of doctrine. And so today, they'll tell you, oh, this is the Fed. Oh, this is a new revelation. Oh, that's a new discovery. Oh, this is what it is. Friends, there is nothing new under the sun. Whatever they showing you as a revelation is only a recovery of what was lost. That's all. And so if you swing to this extreme and swing to the extreme, you are at a risk of being twisted and heretical or being heretical. Jesus is the centre. You know what's the problem with the pendulum? Once it begins, it's downward swing. It can't stop at the centre, you see. There will be a momentum that pulls it to the other extreme. And if you look at every movement, whether is it the works movement, or is it the grace movement, or is it the faith movement, or is it the healing movement, or the angels movement, you notice it's always a correction towards what is to be, but never stopping there, swinging to an extreme, to something else. And that's why we have to know Jesus is the center. We always have to hold Him as the center. And He's the living Word. He's given us Scripture. He's given us the Holy Spirit. So let's do our part. It is written. You need to know what it is. So twister alert, friends. Today, I'm a tornado warning system. I'm a twister warning system for us. And I want you to hold me accountable. And I hope you give me permission to also hold you accountable. Because in these final days, deception will increase. We have already been told that. Those will come in the name of Christ. The Word of God is already perverted, twisted to such an extent. It's used to justify licentiousness, sexual freedom, love. Call it what you want. Churches have gotten the Scripture. They have voted based on Scripture for things like same-sex marriages. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Peter was really challenging the believers, encouraging them to stay true, to be diligent. And then he talks about Paul. According to the wisdom given to Paul that he has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things in which some things are hard to understand. See, even Peter says it's hard to understand. So when you read Paul's letters, if you don't understand you are in good company. Which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. I hope you understand my heart, where I'm coming from. See, as we look at this second temptation of Jesus, the enemy using the Word to his own advantage, but Jesus, obviously, the living Word, knowing His Word, Doesn't even argue with him. Just tells him, stop it. Don't even think of tempting God. I know who I am. I know who my God is. And so you're not going to have your way with me. In the other temptations, he uses the word again. And that's why I thought this would be a good opportunity to challenge us. Do you know the word? Have you lived twisted applications? Have you been twisted in the wrong way? Have you twisted the word for other people even? Sometimes we can be so convinced in it that we want to convince other people. There's good news. We are in Christ, amen? And if we acknowledge, we realize, we can come to Him. He will teach us. He will lead us. He says, I'll give you the Holy Spirit. He will guide you into all truth so let's look at the life of Jesus, look at the ministry of Jesus, study the words of Jesus, and allow Him to guide us. And may we stay true to His Word and not be twisted, nor be a twister. Let us pray. Father, thank You for, again, Scripture. And Lord, even as we say that, we want to go straight, Lord, to saying, Lord, we have messed up at times. We have treated Your Word lightly we have gone to different sources, different people, because it sounded so good, sounded nice, but perhaps it only played to our own earthly, sensual desires. We ask you to forgive us, Lord. You have left us this word. We in Singapore, Lord, we can have five Bibles, ten Bibles, but Lord, we just need to read one. Help us, Lord, to know it. And to know it, not by picking things out, because we like those things, but to understand it in its context, in its entirety. And if we need help, Lord, bring us right people, brothers and sisters, where we won't argue for the sake of arguing, but we will discourse and search the Scriptures to prove if it is true. So help us, Lord. Teach us, Lord. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.